Hello, and welcome to Flushing Transit Authority, a New York Mets podcast. I'm Will Stegman. Normally, I'm joined by Jay Bushman, but Jay is on assignment this week in an undisclosed location. However, we've still got some Mets news. Let's see. Um, First of all, we're dropping an episode um, in between episodes. Normally, we're doing these every two weeks. However, with the interleague subway series taking place this week, we thought we would check in because, hey, what would we do? What would we do as Mets fans if we couldn't also talk about the guys on the other side of town? Um, but we're doing things a little bit differently this week. Instead of um, me just talking about um, what's going on with the Mets in Jay's absence, um, I'm going to be joined shortly by a baseball writer uh, and extraordinary human being, Matt Callen, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, sort of the history of our Mets fandom, our feelings about the uh, other team in town, and we're going to talk a lot about two of our favorite Mets teams, two teams that Matt happens to be the world's foremost expert on. But we'll get to that in a minute. Since we last talked about the Mets, a couple of things have happened. And really, I want to give credit to my co-host, Jay Bushman. Um, When the trade, when the non-waiver trade deadline passed and Jay Bruce had not been moved, my co-host said, well, keep an eye out. I wouldn't rule out. Jay Bruce getting moved after the deadline because it's a good chance he's going to clear waivers. And as we learned this week, that was the case. Jay Bruce has gone to Cleveland. Jay Bruce, thank you for being a Met. Um, We greatly appreciate the time that you spent here. Um, Personally, I've got to say I'm really happy that Jay Bruce got a redemption story. You know what? He had a tough time with the Mets in 2016. He really turned it around. Um, had a great, you know, two-thirds of a season here with the Mets. I'm really happy to, to uh, see that he's set himself up for hopefully a, a sizable contract in the offseason with whoever decides to, to sign him. And also it's good to know that he's going to be in a pennant race and gets a chance to get back to the postseason where hopefully... Um, you know, I'm going to find myself rooting for him and the Indians um, in the upcoming weeks. Then we got a surprise. Um, well, maybe not so much a surprise, but should have known this when they were playing him at third base. Uh, the Mets also moved Neil Walker. Um, when I get to my interview with Matt, you will um, hear us talk about Neil Walker a little bit. Uh, again, Neil Walker, you exceeded expectations for us last year. You were hurt, but still... Um, I'm grateful for the time you spent with the Mets. Um, I wish you good luck in Milwaukee, where you've landed, or as Jay likes to call it now, Neilwaukee. So, good luck to you, Neil. Hope you make the postseason as well. Um, outside of that, what's been going on? You know what? The Mets just took three out of four against Philadelphia. Beats the alternative. I'm not going to get too excited about it. I'm looking at the rest of this year as largely an audition for the 2018 Mets. But let's talk a little bit about Mets of the past. Like I said, I'm going to be joined in just a moment by Matt Callen. Matt Callen, if you're not familiar with him, you should be. Um, 
one of the best places to find Matt Callen is um, on Twitter, where he is um, Scratch Bomb. Uh, that's spelled just like it sounds. Or you can just look up Matt Callen. I will link to his information in the show notes um, for this episode. Um, we talk a lot about a book that Matt has got coming out soon called Yells for Ourselves. Um, take a look at the show notes and listen to Matt for information on where you can get that. And also, Matt is also the author of a great baseball novel called Hang a Crooked Number. Um, we don't talk about it in this episode, but, um, I should have him on to talk about that as well because baseball fiction is something, good baseball fiction is uh, hard to come by, and when somebody does it well, um, I like to let people know about that. Hanger Crooked Number, again, is Matt's um, baseball novel. It's more than just baseball, though. Again, I recommend it. I really enjoyed it. Um, you may be familiar with Matt's work through uh, Amazing Avenue, the Mets blog, or through a number of things he has written about baseball, um, pop culture, music. Again, he's a great baseball writer a great writer in general, and a fantastic human being. And we have a really great conversation about um, his Mets fandom and two of our favorite Mets teams, the 1999 and 2000 New York Mets. So here we go. Uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Matt Callen. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, hey, thank you for making time. Um, I gotta say, this sounds very natural and not like we were just discussing what we were going to do a second ago. No, not at all. The, um, the recording started at the exact moment that you greeted me, and yes. we had not spoken before. This is just like one of those um, things where they bring some up on stage and say, we haven't met before, have we? <laughs> Exactly. So, person in the audience I've never met, how are you doing today? I'm doing swell. It's a beautiful, uh, here it's a beautiful, uh, not horribly hot New York morning for once, so, you know, it's a, it's a good day. Fantastic. Are you mourning the um, departure of Neil Walker from the Mets? Not especially. Um, nothing against Mr. Walker. I just, he's, I feel like he sort of, uh, streaked across the sky as, yes. as a Met, kind of. Um, you know, he had some moments last year. He was, uh, I think we were actually watching a little bit of the game last night, and, my, and they were discussing his imminent parter, departure. And my wife said, was he, did he play this year? <laughs> and I, my immediate reaction was, yeah, of course he played this year. But then trying to think of anything he might have actually done in the year 2017, I, I, I was yeah. coming up like, at a loss. I know he's been injured, but somehow Neil Walker hit... 10 home runs is met this year, and I think I remember one of them. Yeah, that's astounding to me that he hit that many home runs. Like, I feel like he was injured for, for months. Like, it's, if, if you asked me without having to look it up, I would have said, oh, like, he probably got hurt, like, second game of the season and then just came back, like, a week ago, right? Yeah. Like, I, I know that's not true, but my memory <laughs> would, would tell me that that seems to be true. It's funny, this is, you know, I've probably followed the team cl as close this year as I have ever, partly for, you know, doing this podcast and partly just because it's an escape from the rest of the world. But it's interesting how little sort of specifics of the season 
that I remember, and it's because like I watch the game and then immediately jump back into the rest of the world. So I don't, you know, the good thing is I don't do that thing where I turn the game over, over and over again. So like my Mets-related anxiety and angst is way down, but my anxiety about everything else is significantly higher. Yeah, so. I kind of feel the same way. It's like, you know, I, I just sort of had this liberating feeling of, of like when, you know, it was clear that this year was, it was not to be and they were going to start, uh, they were going to start selling off players and, and trading off players and so forth. I was like, well, then, like, I don't have to, like, be worried about everything related to this team, which, you know, I shouldn't be in the first place. But now I especially don't need to be because it clearly doesn't matter. Um, but that just leaves room for worrying about other things if you're yeah. the kind of person who worries about things. Oh, I am. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. And um, what is it? It's 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and I've been up for an hour. So you can tell where, where my head is these days. <laughs> You know what? So let's talk about better things. Yes. We've sort of agreed as, as Mets fans collectively that this year is a wash and we're playing for 2018. But rather than look forward, I've been spending some time um, talking to Mets fans and, and sort of looking back. And what I've been trying to sort of get to is people's fandom origin stories. Like, you know, how did you become a Mets fan? Like, do you remember... I'm a Mets fan. Like, what is what is the moment for you? Do you have a story? I feel like it's almost like a, without being too flippant about it, it's almost like a born-again kind of thing. Um, because when I was a kid, I loved baseball, I, and, um, you know, I grew up in, in, a, in a Mets household, basically. Um, but, you know, drifted away from it, really, as a, you know, I think... You may remember this, like when I was a kid, um, we were we were around the same age. Um, it was already starting to be the to the point where, like, if you didn't have cable, you couldn't really watch. Um, yeah, you couldn't really watch any of the games or, or many of the games. And we, where we lived, um, I grew up a little bit upstate. Uh, it's called Orange County. It's like it, it's about as far away as you can live from the city and and kind of be within its sphere of influence. Got it. Um, and they were they had barely wired the place for cable to begin with. And it was like if you had cable, at least to me as a kid, it was like if you had cable, you were rich. So, <laughs> um, so we didn't have cable. We, like we got to see like one game a week, and it's kind of it's, it's like hard to. Um, it's hard to maintain any sort of fandom if you can't actually see the team. Right. Like my mom would listen to the radio games. Area? No, actually, we, we could hear um, we could hear WFAN really well up there. Um, so my mom would listen to the games on the radio, but it, and pretty religiously. Um, but it's not it's not quite the same thing. I don't think. I think especially if you're a kid, like you know, it's not 1935. So like everyone huddling around the radio, I think it's not right. Really, to a yeah, kid who is already introduced to television. Like, if right. somehow we, I didn't have television, then it would have been a different story. But it's like, mm -hmm. if you can't, you know, if you're not, if you already have TV in your, in your media life, you can't kind of regress to radio as your primary, um, you know, uh, sports fan experience. Yeah. Not as so, a kid. No, not, definitely not as a kid. Like, I could probably deal with it now. If I had to just listen to a game on the radio, I, I could nowadays, I think, but... It's just different back then as you're sort of developing as a fan. So I sort of like 
drifted away from it, um, you know, baseball in general, um, you know, high school, college, and so forth. And then really sort of towards the tail end of the, of, um, probably, I guess right at the end of college would have been right around like, that would have been 1999 for me. Um, and that season, which, you know, kind of like roped me back into liking baseball in general and the Mets in particular. And, um, I mean, it, it, that season was so nuts and weird and unique um, that I think that's sort of the perfect thing that, like, if you already had a foundation in your head of, like, I like baseball, like, that would have totally roped you back in. And that was sort right. of, like, I sort of like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna like this again. Like, you sort of make a decision in your head mm-hmm. to kind of, like, I don't know, like, I can't think of, an, of, of particularly of, like, an inciting incident per se, like a particular game or cause at this point I still didn't have cable and I still did, but it was sort of like, um, it, it was sort of just like just being in the atmosphere of it. And, you know, uh, just being around, uh, you know, in New York at the time when this insane, um, season is taking place, it sort of like did it for me. It's one of those things, you know, where you're like, right time, you're the right age, you know, yeah. you're, 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 you know, you're a young man, you're just kind of figuring the world out, and then there's this amazing storyline playing out all through that season. But I, I want to go back real quick, um, you know, as I talk to a lot of fans, the thing that I always hear is, oh, well, like, my parent was a, you know, was a Mets fan. And... Not to be cliched, but like, you know, for me, it was my dad was a Mets fan. But you mentioned that your mom was a religious listener of the games on radio. So was she sort of your in? I think so, yeah. And, um, you know, that was like the biggest sort of like fan cue as a kid that she was really into into it and listening to the radio like every night, um, you know, in our kitchen, just kind of like sitting there listening to it, you know, while most of the rest of the family is like watching TV of some kind. Right. Um, my dad was, what's that? Like, you know, Wheel of Fortune is on in the, in the living room. Yeah. And your mom's <laughs> listening to, uh, to Bob Murphy. Yeah. In the, uh, in the kitchen. Like she would, between like, um, you know, Bob Murphy and, and uh, I don't know, family ties, like Bob right. Murphy won that fight uh, most of the time. Um, yeah. I mean, like, cause my, my dad was, not into really, not really into sports at all. And, um, you know, so like she was sort of the cue and, you know, I, I guess that's probably unusual a little bit just because I'm I know, you know, most, I think most people like, or most, most dudes anyway, tend to, you know, when it comes to sports, they tend to like, um, it's like a dad thing, but, um, I, you know, it's that funny was, though. Yeah. If there's one thing that's sort of come out of the garbage that is social media, um, it's it's for me it's seeking out like other Mets fans and finding out like how many moms were were big Mets fans and realizing that like oh I got this is it it was different from my experience so when I hear it I always want to know more about it which is why I asked. Don't mean to pry into your mom's business. No, <laughs> no that's, a, you know, I've, I've seen that too. I mean, I think it's probably more, you know, I said it was unusual. It's, it's probably not. I mean, it's just, I think it's more common that, um, you know, again, that, that dudes are oh, like, certainly. Yeah. probably you yeah. grow up in a household where like the dad is the big sports fan, but mm-hmm. that's like not, I don't, 
you know, I, I've definitely seen that on social media as well, where people will talk about how their their mom being a crazy Mets fan, or there's plenty of moms on social media themselves who are who are crazy yeah. Mets fans, yeah, in their own right, and it's not like it's not something they it's you know there's it's not something they adopted because of like marriage or or whatever. It's like they're you know they they have fandom agency of their own you know yeah. i think there's well, it's like more, my more wife Leo, was a, that, you know, she can hold her yeah. own in a sports argument she knows yes, her exactly. stuff doesn't need me and you know i've i know your wife and again nobody needs to teach her or or, or tell her to do anything she can figure it out and your wife is also the best by the way but oh well thank we'll, you i I'll, agree i'll talk to her about this at another time <laughs> okay um so the thing that i always ask mets fans is you know, especially when you grew up in the New York area, um, is, so have you ever considered maybe rooting for another team or specifically that other team in town that I never mentioned the name of? Well, I had, you know, I had a, I had a, a, the thing about, um, I think when I was a kid is that I think that those lines were, especially if you're a kid, I think that the lines were a little like weren't as harsh as they might that they became later and are mm-hmm. now maybe like um, now when I was a kid like the Mets undoubtedly ruled the the sports landscape like this Me is too. right around eighty six the Mets were unquestionably the better team and the more popular team yes. and so um, Yankee fandom back then as as crazy as it might sound to modern ears carried with it a certain amount of underdogism um, because the Yankees of now the Yankees in the eighties, they weren't, they weren't a terrible team, but they just weren't, they weren't for the most of the decade, they weren't as good as the Yankees. They weren't as inch or they weren't as good as the Mets. They weren't as interesting as the Mets. And in fact, they had a lot of like a lot of dysfunction around them revolving around their um, maniac owner. Right. Who, um, who's kind of like, oh, he's been very, his image has been scrubbed up a lot, but, um, in, especially in the eighties, he, he was a tyrant and he was also an ineffective tyrant. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like he, if he was, he was the dictator who made sure the trains didn't run on time, basically. (laughs) Like everything that he, he would just, and of course I keep saying he and not referring to him. Of course I'm referring to George Steinbrenner, but he fired managers all the time. He made, um, he he made free agent move forced the team to make free agent moves that um, crippled them because they 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 would lose draft picks and they would um, in return get people who were just like flavor of the month like right I one I one for some reason I always remember Jack Clark like he was I remember a, that he yeah. was like he was the guy who, he was kind of a he was a, like a home run hitter uh, from the Cardinals and he was. So he was so touted that they actually changed uh, Yankee Stadium slightly. They made that right field porch, they pushed it in a little further to so that he, a lefty, could hit yeah. more home runs. And he wound up being a gigantic bust. And just, you know, it, that was very typical of them. Like, they threw good money after bad. Mm-hmm. And, I have the vaguest you know, memory of Jack Clark as a Yankee, but yeah. only the vaguest. You know, the funny thing about those 80s Yankees teams is they were much better than I remembered. Yeah, they were actually, I mean, they had, you know, obviously Don Mattingly was great. And this sort of speaks to my 
my sort of my my memory of like the lines of like fandom is that like I remember I really liked Don Manningly. I thought like I liked him as a player. I thought he was awesome. I liked to watch him play. He was an easy Um, guy to like, especially if you were a fan of Keith Hernandez like we were. Yeah, he was very they were sort of like he was he was less fiery than Keith Hernandez. He wouldn't like threaten to punch a pitcher on the mound the way that Keith Hernandez was. But he was like he was almost as good a fielder and he was a he was He's you better know, hitter. A, a better hitter like he could hit, hit more for power um than than Keith Hernandez could so he was like a fun guy to watch and then like a really good guy to watch I uh, you know they had Dave Winfield they had Ricky Henderson they had like some say some like you had like two hall of famers and one guy who probably would have been a hall of famer if he hadn't gotten hurt yeah you know so like they had some they had some great teams. They just the big X factor was again George Steinbrenner, who, like, um, who just couldn't let anyone else do anything for that team. And I remember, I mean, there was the you know the the time that George Steinbrenner got banned from mm-hmm. uh, he got banned from baseball in I think ni- early nineties. I forget. Was it nineteen ninety? I think possibly. Yeah, I can't remember the exact year all the time my head, but it was very sure. early 90s he got banned when he got banned from baseball they made the announcement at yankee stadium and the stadium like erupted in cheers they were like yankee fans were so overjoyed that he wasn't going to be messing up their team anymore that the entire st- the entire stadium which by that point would probably have not been that very many fans to be yeah. fair but presumably if you were a yankees fan at yankee stadium in 1990 you were a diehard and you were very happy that George Steinbrenner was no longer going to be messing up your team. And yeah, the main reason why I remember that, and, uh, you know, when I was working on the book, I went back and researched to make sure that this was actually true. Um, but I remembered it because I was, there was some kind of, like, family thing at my grandparents' house, and I had one uncle who's an enormous Yankees fan, and he he literally leaped for joy when he heard it. He was like, you know, and then was so happy that George Steinbrenner was not going to be messing up his favorite team anymore. Yeah, and it was that time away that really led to the foundation of what became the the late 90s Yankee dynasty because yeah. if I remember correctly, you know, just basically leaving Gene Michael in charge to, uh, you know, draft, you know, Derek Jeter and, and build the team that became that powerhouse late 90s team that sort yeah. of still haunts us to this day. <laughs> so yeah. you mentioned your book. And really, all of this has been prologue for what I've really wanted to talk to you about is, so you've written a book called Yells for Ourselves about specifically the 1999 Mets, but really there's a lot about the sort of New York at the turn of the millennium and the sort of Mets fan, Yankee fan, you know, dichotomy. Um, I would love for you to sort of talk about like what inspired you to put this together um, you know, tell me whatever you want to share about it. I don't want to guide the, the talk here. I've read it, by the way, and it's amazing, and I love it. But oh, thank you. Share for those who, who have not read it yet. Uh, well, I, I had started years ago, I, you know, almost as like a, a thank you kind of thing to that 99 team. I, like, I just decided I'm going to jump in and like, look back at every single game that they played and did it in a very sort of methodical way. Um, and then later, um, when I was writing for uh, Amazing Avenue, 
um, I did something similar for 2000 and I had all this sort of like raw sort of data on, on the, on those two seasons to sort of like, you know, to the point where like I could kind of like see a thread or see a narrative of everything sort of evolving, um, you know, in like, in researching to do those things, I started to see how sort of, you know, the story of what was happening in New York City at that time was, um, mm -hmm. it was inter like it was impossible to escape because there was so much of like civic life that was tied into what was happening in the baseball teams. And, and you know, not entirely, of course, but a big reason was, you know, Rudy Giuliani being like sort of, sort of the symbol of of sort of the the city's uh, transformation, yeah. but also because he himself just basically he yoked himself to the Yankees in such a big way, and I mean organically because he was a you know he was a he didn't have to fake being a huge Yankees fan he was right. a huge Yankees fan, but there was so much it, it was almost too perfect almost like a literary device <clears throat> excuse me that here you have like the city changes so much um, within a short period of time, um, goes from being a complete mess to, um, to being a place that's attracting tourists and rich people again. Um, but that also, but a transformation that also has trade-offs, meaning that if you're not a tourist or you're not rich, um, then where's a place for you um, in, this, in this new city? And it's meanwhile, you- Taking care of that problem. Yeah, that's completely solved now, yeah. <laughs> totally solved. Um, and then meanwhile, you have this other team in town who sort of like represents in a lot of people's minds still um, the the decade where everything fell apart. Um, you know, the, the the Mets were huge in the 80s, but the 80s were really bad time for New York. And there was there was a still an association in people's minds, sort of like the Mets were like the 80s, the Yankees yeah. were the 90s. So how do the Mets make themselves relevant again to the times in which they are. And I think something that makes that period unique, and again, you talk about it in the book, is the way the media landscape was changing. And you know, between radio, the sort of the growing impact of the internet, um, and the way there was just sort of, for the first time, we were in sort of a 24-7 sports news cycle. And it felt to me, like in the late 90s, that with the Yankees being good, and the Mets sort of struggling to find an identity that, at least for me, when I was still living there, I kind of lived and breathed baseball during the season in a way that I never did before. Yeah, that was and, definitely true. There was like, you know, again, this is, it's not at the birth of the internet, but it's sort of like, I think it's probably when people really started to be online a lot. Um, right and realized how much, you know, how quickly information really could travel. Uh, and so, yeah, that's definitely true that you would see that things would be, things, you know, news would happen very quickly and there'd be a very, uh, a focus on things like trade rumors and so forth that we're sort of used to by now. And it actually travel even faster thanks to like Twitter and, and other forms of social media. Um, but it was a brand new thing back then, and the speed at which everything happened was a kind of dizzying for everyone involved, including, you know, not just fans, but also the, the media that, um, that was serving them. Um, one thing 
that's really interesting, uh, I think, anyway, to, to look at it in those years, is it's sort of the last time that newspapers in particular have this real, um, have this real sway over the narrative and, uh, and also and are very conscious of it. Like right. you, One of the you, things I loved about the book is that you refer to those contemporary sources and you're referring to contemporary columnists and talking about it in real time. You know, it's one thing to look at it through the lens of history and like, oh, we know how this deal turned out. But when you're talking about it, like, hey, here was the analysis in real time. Um, for me, it brought back so many memories that I had just kind of forgotten about. Like, you know, it's, I always joke, you know, when I think of the 99 team, I was like, you know, Benny Yagbayani. But you know what? When Benny Yagbayani came up and started hitting, like, that was an amazing little run that you realize now was, you know, lasted a month. But, you know, when you go to contemporary sources, um, people were very excited about that. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, and that's the other thing that, I, you know, the reason why I sort of present the book and write it the way I do, I, I try to do it in sort of as much as humanly possible because otherwise, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's going to be a very large book when it comes out anyway, but it would have been like, it would have been like a couple of phone books if, uh, you know, if I examined it any, <laughs> any closer. Um, but I try to sort of capture how quickly narratives would shift and what sort of the focus at any given period of time in a season um, because I think that's important to understand sort of how things wind up in the end. Right. Um, there's, I mean, the second half of the book is about the 2000 season. And for most of the 2000 season, um, be basically because of the way that the 1999 season happened, like the Mets, at the end of the 99 season, sort of the, you know, Mets obviously did not make it uh, even as far as the World Series, but it's, they're sort of like crowned as like, champs of a kind because of sort of their their um, grit and determination mm -hmm. um and so you enter 2000 and the and for like long stretches of 2000 um the 2000 season the Mets um were like just okay um and then you know at, at, at some point they they kind of poured it on and they they were they played very well um for a good chunk of the second half of the season um but because they had the, they had sort of like bought themselves a, a fair amount of collateral in the media, basically the way that they played in 1999. Meanwhile, the Yankees, you know, and, and again, at this point, the Yankees have won three of the last four World Series. And you right. would think that if anybody has any, has any like, um, you know, can be given a mulligan for anything that they can. Um, but the media was like relentless. If you read sort of the, the portrayals of the Yankees at that time, they, they killed the Yankees all year for not playing as well as they thought they should. And, that's and there one of the were... Things that I was shocked by in reading this because the 99 and 2000 seasons were also the first years that I lived in Los Angeles. And I was following the team from a distance and following New York sports from a distance. So I only got sort of what made it across the country. And again... The internet in 2000 isn't what the internet is today. I, you know, yeah, I guess I could go read the Daily News, but I didn't seek it out. So to read those, that contemporary coverage of the 2000 Yankees, you know, which in spoiler alert, you know, is the team that won the World Series that year. And you look and you see how 
um, how they got just killed in the press all year. Um, and I was, I was so surprised to look at their end of season record. And what did they win? 87, 86, 87 games that year? Yeah. I mean, the main reason they won the division that year is because the surrounding competition just yeah. wasn't that great. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the Red Sox, I, uh, I, I want to say that like Pedro Martinez got hurt that year, but I, I he did. Yeah. Don't, yeah. And then, and then the Blue Jays kind of made a, a feint at, at catching them. Um, but it, that never quite went, went anywhere either. Um, but there was, a, there was like huge stretch in September, especially of that year where it was like, they, they entered September having a really comfortable lead in the division, despite playing like, okay. Right. And then they just, they reeled off like enormous losing streaks. And the, even though there was still no danger of them not making the playoffs really, um, again, they just got murdered in the press. And I think part of it is because, and I talk about this a bunch in the book, but they sort of, it was, I want to say that it's, it was almost their fault, the Yankees' fault, because mm-hmm. they had cast themselves as, you know, they had this season in 1998 that's, you know, might not ever be equaled in terms of, like, sheer dominance and, and just, like, just destroying all competition. Um, but rather than treat it like, rather than treat 1998 like the um, the astronomically rare event that it was, they basically said that that was. They projected that you know, well, we we we're going to do that again, over and over right. again, and the they never quite explicitly said that, but they implied that. They like they, they demanded such excellence out of themselves, and they also implied it when they went out after that season and they traded for Roger Clemens. And sort of like we're the best team, like possibly in history, and we think we can make ourselves better for next year by acquiring like one of the greatest pitchers ever. So they sort of they sort of set themselves up in that manner. And so when they now for any other team probably should have earned the right by winning three or four World Series to, you know, just like have the press just take it down a notch a little bit. Uh, but sort of just because of the cantankerous nature of the press, the New York press in general, and also because the Yankees had basically declared that they would not accept anything less than right. like utter domination. Um, those two things made it so that they just, they couldn't, um, they 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 couldn't enjoy, or you know, even excuse anything less than that. Yeah, it seems like that was at least in my mind the beginning of World Series or bust for that era. I know that other Yankee teams had that in the past, and it certainly existed in the Steinbrenner era. And while George was still alive during this time, his role was diminished. Um, it was more of a you know Brian Cashman run organization with George as the sort of loud-mouthed figurehead. Um, but that was sort of the, hey, if we don't win at all, it doesn't matter. Which I think, as a Mets fan, seemed so foreign to me. Yeah, it does, it's like they pretty much, well, there were all these things in the press back then of like they would say, you know, we, we want to, 
you know, our goal is winning in, in October, you know, our, and, and so the press would get on them for like not, you know, they, it, at least in their eyes, they would get on the Yankees for like sort of sleepwalking through certain games in the regular season. Right. Like they would, they would get mad at them for like not treating a, you know, a Sunday afternoon game against the Tampa Bay Devil Rays as like a life or death struggle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that point the team was much older. Um, You know, they don't, they, certainly had enough experience to know like what you know how to pace themselves for during a, a very long regular season they of anyone should have known you know should have been given the benefit of the doubt and they never yeah. were i think there was a lot of resentment um from the yankees um at that time that was directed at the media and it was definitely directed at the mets because the, not for so much for anything that the Mets in particular did or did not do or did to them, but because the media w- would just say, hey, like, look at the Mets. They're they're fun, they're gritty, they're exciting, and the Yankees are boring and old. And the Yankees were like, well, like, hey, screw you. Like, we yeah. we won all these World Series. What else do you want from us? And so there was a lot, I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, the, the incidents that happened, especially during the 2000 season, I think you can, you know, if you want to psycho biograph it, I think you can really attribute it to, um, to the beating that they took at the hands of the press. You know, they took it out of the Mets who it wasn't the Mets fault. Um, but they were, but they couldn't fight, um, Mike Lupica. So, (laughs) so they fought Mike Piazza. As much as we'd love to all fight Mike Lupica, yes. and we, we, I could dedicate a whole podcast to talking about the days when someone like Mike Lupica was entertaining and Tim McCarver was a, was a good uh, broadcaster, but that's a whole other day's podcast. <laughs> you know, it sounds as you're describing that 2000 Yankees team, like that's as close as we've ever come to having an NBA team sort of that sort of goes on autopilot until the playoffs. Um, in yeah, Major League Baseball. They were kind of like the Spurs of the of MLB back then. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, the, with like Joe Torre as Popovich, who's going to like, he's just going to rest everybody for this one game and everyone's going to get really mad at him. And he, you know, he, he doesn't particularly care. Because... Yeah, I, I love Greg Popovich, but that's a, <laughs> again, that's another podcast as well. Um, like I've said, Matt, I, I love, um, you know, what I've read from the book. I think it's it's terrific. Um, where can people where can people get this? Uh, well, if you go to inkshares.com, um, this was sort of a like a I don't almost a crowdfunded thing. Um, basically, you know, I put it up. Inkshares is kind of like a almost like a Kickstarter for books, and mm-hmm. you put your book up there, and if it gets a certain amount of pre-orders, then they they publish it. Um, we met our goal about a month ago. So um, it's totally it's totally funded. It's totally going to be an actual real book. Um, it's going through the uh, production processes right now, um, getting a copy edit and all that good stuff. So if you go to again, if you go to inkshares.com and uh, just search for yells for ourselves, or even just yells, if you start typing in yells, it should come right up. 
Not um, a lot of other Yells books in their series right now. No, as I just checked right before this podcast just to make sure. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if you type in Yells, um, it, that's the one that comes up right away. Um, you could get uh, – there's an ebook, There's also paperback, um, you know, whichever, whichever format you prefer. Uh, Buy both. Yeah, why not? Um, I think actually, if you buy the paperback, you get an ebook for your trouble. So if uh, if you want both, that might be the best way to do it. Um, actually, I I don't know that one hundred percent for sure. So please, please don't quote me on that. Uh, it'll all be there on the site. Though. It'll all be there on the site, and um, it'll probably be coming out uh, early next year. Um, I don't have a firm date on that because we just really started the production process. I'm, I was told that it takes that takes about six months, but um, you know, I, I again, I don't have like a I don't have a pub date per se, but you know, as soon as as soon as I do, I'm gonna let everyone know about that. It will be ready as soon as it's ready, and I assure yes. you, listeners, it will be worth the wait. And I also have to say, like, you don't have to be a Mets fan to like this. You know, I've uh, I'm gonna just compliment you here, Matt. So just if you want to not listen to this for a second. Um, okay. Matt is one of the best baseball writers, um, one of the best writers, period. But specifically, when it comes to baseball, Matt's got a great way of writing about baseball in a way that makes you care about it, even if you're not familiar with the team you're reading about. So if you're just a baseball fan or a fan of just sort of drama, um, this book is terrific. Obviously, if you're a Mets fan, it should be on your list. And if you're not, please... Take a look for it. I think you're really going to like it. Okay, I'm done complimenting you. Oh, well, well thank you for, for ending that torture. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I'll say that if, you know, again, if you go to Inkshares and, and you look on, on the site there for Yells for Ourselves, there's an excerpt there of the, um, of the introduction. And that's sort of, it's a very long introduction because it kind of has to set up a lot of, basically setting you up for everything that you kind of need to know before you enter the 1999 season. That includes a lot of stuff about Bobby Valentine. It includes a lot of stuff about um, the state of New York City in the 90s and Rudy Giuliani. Um, a lot of stuff about sort of the earliest incarnations of the Subway series. Mm -hmm. So um, so all of, that, all of that information is there. Um, if, if, if you're interested at all in the book, I suggest going to the site, reading the intro, and uh, you know, if you, if you like what you see there, then maybe consider buying. I, and I will say this for the book. It goes extensively into the Bobby Valentine disguise incident. And listeners, I'm going to tell you, I don't want to spoil anything in the book. It's even crazier than you remember. Yes, I would agree with that. I'm just, I would just say as a teaser, the story, uh, apart from the fact that it involves Bobby Valentine putting on a crazy costume, it also somehow involves David Wells, um, it somehow involves Lorne Michaels, and it somehow also involves deceased uh, Venezuelan strongman Hugo Chavez. Which is my, my favorite, and I can't even, I'm laughing just thinking about it. Read, you have to read the book. It's really one of the, like I said, there are a few times where I'm like, oh, that was a lot crazier than even I remember it. And, you know, that incident is one of the most covered incidents in Mets history. And still, even more than you think. I love it. Um, Matt, I will put up a link to this to make sure people can find it um, to the Inkshares page. 
and I realize I've taken up twice as much of your time as I planned on, but thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. And um, everybody go out and find Yells for Ourselves. Matt Callen, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I always love talking to you, and thanks for having me on the show. All right, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Hi, everybody. It's Will Stegman again. Um, just want to thank Matt again for joining us. Um, and I just want to say thank you for listening to Flushing Transit Authority. And uh, Jay Bushman, if they've got podcasts where you are and you're listening to this, please get home safely. We miss you. The Mets miss you. Again, thank you for listening to Flushing Transit Authority. We will be back next week with more Mets news, maybe some Mets complaints, maybe a special guest. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much, and let's go Mets. Mets.